So, Professor Brightsworth, welcome to the Tick Bootcamp podcast. Uh, we are really excited to interview you. You're someone that we've targeted for interview for a long, long time. And, you know, we here at Tick Bootcamp understand that uh, Lyme disease is, is a, a polymicrobial, multisystemic, chronic infectious disease. And because of that, we've really wanted to reach out to some of the folks who are expanding the focus of their research and expanding the focus of the of the different microbes that they're studying. And you are the star in the field that we were looking for to get on this podcast on Bartonella. So, but before we go forward with that little teaser, I, I'd like you to first uh, share with our folks currently where you're working, where are you where are you a professor, and we'd like to build out your background, uh, which got you to the place where you are now at NC State. Well, Rick and Mac, I'm really happy to be on Tick Camp today, and uh, I appreciate uh, the invitation. I am a professor of medicine and infectious disease at the College of Veterinary Medicine at North Carolina State University, and I'm an adjunct professor in Division of Infectious Disease at Duke University Medical Center. And that is really cool. You're uh, you're you're working at two really um, you know power institutions, and so your your background is uh, in veterinary medicine. Yes, sir. Yeah, I um, obtained a bachelor's degree in animal sciences at the University of Maryland and then uh, a DBM at the University of Georgia, a internship in internal medicine residency at the University of Missouri, uh, spent about six years on the faculty at LSU and then have been on the faculty here at NC State ever since. So what drove you to, um, you know, to this academic study um, in the with, with animals and how did that ultimately bring you to a place where you began to research, um, you know, the really cool topics that you're researching now? Well, the, I, I became a veterinarian because of a cow. Um, I grew up on a farm and we had a milk cow that I used to get to milk before I went to school. Um, and she had a calf and then the calf in drinking the milk, she couldn't put calcium in her blood as fast as the calf was taking it out. And she developed what was called milk fever. And so my father called the veterinarian, the veterinarian came, he looked at the cow and he said, your cow's got milk fever. And he put a catheter in, held a bottle of calcium up and a couple minutes, the cow stood up. And I said, wow, that's what I wanna do. And I think I was probably in the eighth grade at that point in time. Um, once I got into veterinary school, I came to realize there's only two things that get a cow up. One is a bottle of calcium, which only occurs rarely. And the other is a forklift where you lift them up. So the, what got me to be a veterinarian um, rapidly transitioned into doing companion animal veterinary medicine because it's very analogous to what happens in human medicine and um, dogs in particular I think are, are really good sentinels for our vector-borne and tick-transmitted infectious diseases. So another reason, you know, to be to be fair to you, so you understand why we were targeting you, uh, that we were we're excited to have you on this podcast is because uh, because you are a veterinarian, right? We we actually had our first veterinarian on this podcast uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. I don't think we published that episode yet. And the reason we wanted to start to target veterinarians is because there is, of course, this process. Um, of, uh, of of disease that begins with an animal and an animal uh, harboring a, 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 a set of microbes. And then there is a vector that is biting that animal, which then bites a human and spits into us 
um, all of the microbes that are causing so many of us to be become chronically ill. And we spent a lot of time on this podcast working with folks whose expertise is in human biology. We spent a lot of time focusing on folks who have focused on ticks and, and, and tick biology, but we knew that we were missing an important piece of this uh, process if we didn't start to interview folks who had your expertise and, th and didn't have your training and expertise. And, we, and we, we were blown away by the information that we had gotten from one of your colleagues uh, with a degree in veterinary medicine. And that was another really important piece of this, that there is this process uh, where, where, where we're getting sick because, uh, because, we are, because microbes are being transmitted from an animal to, um, you know, to us with a vector. And we really need to start to spend more time focusing on the prism through which you develop an expertise. Can you give us your perspective of why you believe folks with your training and your background are uniquely qualified to add to this conversation? Well, there's a manuscript that's been referenced in many, many subsequent manuscripts that basically says 75% of all human diseases are zoonotic in origin. So just, I, I don't particularly as a veterinarian like the term zoonoses because it, again, says we're the most important part of what is on this planet. And then there's all these other animals that you know, can be infected and be a risk for us. I, I think it's more appropriate to think about it that, you know, a, a dog getting Rocky Mountain spotted fever from a tick is no different in North Carolina than a human getting Rocky Mountain spotted fever from the tick. Um, and it's the chances of a human getting Rocky Mountain spotted fever as a disease from their dog is very close to zero and none. But the chances of a veterinarian actually putting a needle into the dog when it's febrile, obtaining a blood sample and sticking that into their hand, that is a possibility. And, and you know, when we talk about Bartonella, needle transmission has been reported by us to a veterinarian. It's been reported um, by veterinar a, a group in Asia where a veterinarian, again, taking a blood sample inoculated themselves. So I, I think one of the most important things is that Animals and humans share the same infections many, many times. I think the second thing is um, the training in veterinary medicine is a little bit different than the training in human medicine. And part of that is there's a very strong emphasis on microbiology, virology, bacteriology, parasitology, um, which I think is really, really important to establish that extremely strong base, base in those sciences, and then to use that base to build your clinical science knowledge and, and how you apply it. Um, so one area I've been involved with that you've certainly heard of and alluded to is this idea of one health, and that's animal health, human health, and the health of the environment. And I think it's really, really critical, you know, with what's going on in the world, whether it's population change, global health, the increased um, diversity of ticks and their movement around the world, as an example, um, that, that we look at disease transmission and disease manifestations, if you will, um, from a One Health perspective, what happens to humans, what happens to animals, and what's happening in the environment that's affecting the other two. 
So let's talk a little bit now about uh, your lab uh, that you've that you've developed and you've been managing at NC State, and uh, talk about the kind of work that you're doing there, specific to folks who are listening to this podcast and uh, their concerns about their uh, their their health and overcoming chronic diseases caused by uh, tick bites. So. Historically, I'm responsible for three laboratories here at the College of Veterinary Medicine. One um, started in the mid-80s. That's the Vector-Borne Disease Diagnostic Laboratory. And that laboratory only tests animals and predominantly companion animals, cats, dogs, and horses. Um, and I guess to, to our credit, we've almost become the reference laboratory for vector transmitted infectious diseases in animals. Because, Congratulations. Yeah, no, it's it's one thing I'm somewhat proud of for sure, because be. it, it started off with me and a parasitologist is what we would refer to as a mom and pop operation. And now it's far more than a mom and pop operation. And literally most of the veterinary colleges in the United States um, send their samples to us for testing. And most of the veterinary colleges are seeing the most complicated and unusual diseases. And so that laboratory is actually fed one of the other laboratories that I'm primarily responsible for, and that's the Intracellular Pathogens Research Laboratory. And that's the research arm of what we do here in vector-transmitted infectious diseases. And then I'm also the director for the Biosafety Level 3 lab here at the college. Um, and so those are the three laboratories, and right now, um, as still a practicing internist that spends three months by year on clinics seeing sick animals, um, I spend the remainder of my time trying to manage these three laboratories, and with the most emphasis being on our research. Okay, so uh, we are lucky to have five minutes away from all of the work that you're doing for you to talk with us, so you're clearly a very busy guy, and and uh, and Matt is almost jumping out of his chair because he wants to join in. So let's let us get to um, you know this this piece that we really want to talk with you about. And I, I shared with you offline that um, Bartonella is a bacteria that ha has a great deal of interest in the Lyme disease community. And we did share with you earlier that we define Lyme disease not as um, a chronic illness caused by a single bacteria, but it's actually a polymicrobial infection. And uh, we like to. First, focus with you on Bartonella in particular, and then we want to talk to you about Bartonella and its role in this larger spectrum of, 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 of microbes that uh, folks who are chronically ill from, from uh, tick bites, uh, either upstream or downstream, and we'll talk about that in a minute, are, um, are dealing with. So in particular, I shared with you, we had interviewed uh, Nicole Malakowski, uh, Colonel Malakowski, um, on, on a really powerful podcast uh, that we had we had titled uh, Top Gun. It had actually gotten national recognition after we did the podcast. And one of the things that, that Matt and I were blown away by was that Colonel Malakowski shared with us that she was not able to make any gains in managing the mental health components of her disease until she treated the Bartonella. And that was a game changer for her. So we've had our ears perked up uh, you know, for uh, a conversation about Bartonella. And it wasn't until we found you that we finally were able to have that conversation. Uh, we were also uh, told by Nicole Bell, who had written a very powerful memoir about her experience as a spouse of, unfortunately, a man who died from Lyme. Uh, and she shared with us 
that she had a very similar experience with dealing with her husband's um, challenges. And in fact, it, you know, if you know Nicole, she was very blunt with us, and she shared with us that her husband was, you know, was was not very polite to her, um, and was not uh, was not somebody that she really could could you know could uh, even you know even live with when he was and nor her two small children could really live with because he was so over the top uh, until they treated the Bartonella. So talk to us first about Bartonella and how you became interested in, in studying Bartonella. And, uh, and and let's let's then transition over to the neurological and the uh, psychological and psychiatric um, components of this disease. So when I came to North Carolina State University, um, as an old internist, I had actually taught neurology, cardiology, and nephrology. And I really wanted to find a research area that interests me more than focused research in those areas for reasons I won't bore anyone with. And as I looked at what I had published up to that point in time, it was a lot of observations regarding infectious diseases of different types in animals. And I thought, the most important disease in North Carolina at that point was actually Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Mm -hmm. And we knew nothing about it in the context of the actual disease in dogs. And I was fortunate that there was a physician pathologist, uh, an MD at the University of North Carolina, who was probably the US expert on rickettsial diseases and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So Dr. David Walker got us started on rickettsia. And then another organism that everybody needs to keep an eye on um, is Ehrlichia. And again, the Ehrlichias we know a lot more about in veterinary medicine than is currently known, I think, in human medicine overall. And the just because there's Ehrlichias that infect horses, Ehrlichias that infect dogs, um, and but uh, you know, in the United States right now, there's four or five Ehrlichia species that can actually infect a dog. So we worked on Ehrlichia, we worked on Babesia, um, and it was because of my involvement with Rickettsia that I was lucky enough to be at an international meeting in Hamilton, Montana, where catch scratch disease was defined as being caused by Bartonella. And I think it's important for everyone listening to the podcast, and many people know this, but if it were not for the AIDS epidemic, we would not be having this conversation tonight because it took an epidemic with a severely immunocompromised population for a lesion to occur on the skin for us to figure out that there was a bacteria associated with that. And that bacteria becomes Bartonella hensley, the cause of cat scratch disease, or Bartonella quintana, the historical cause of trench fever. And so literally having been at that meeting, and it was the second time I was in a situation where we really knew nothing about Bartonella. Here's a totally new bacteria, but it causes cat scratch disease. And there was a hundred years literally worth of published human data on cat scratch disease. But we had took us a hundred years to actually nail down the organism that was causing it. So my first PhD student worked on Bartonella in cats. We then found the first Bartonella isolate from a dog, which became a new Bartonella species. Um, we looked at Bartonella in cattle, and amazingly enough, on my farm, about 80% of the cows are walking around with Bartonella bovis. So again, before we, 
We did not know the genus existed in a cat, dog, horse, cow, or anything on the North American continent to now being over 40 some species. So there's been literally a explosion in the information on the bacteriology and the bacteria itself. Professor, I just want to jump in here because we had a good friend of ours reach out and tell us she recently met somebody, it's a neighbor of a friend of hers, and he re got diagnosed with Bartonella after spending 10 years in his catatonic state. And they didn't know what was going on. It was almost like in his coma state. And they started treating him after diagnosing with Bartonella. And after aggressive treatment, and I think it was many, many years, he regained a large percentage of his health back. So when you hear Bartonella, you don't think it can be that serious. But this gentleman was really, really just destroyed by Bartonella. So, I mean, from your experience, can Bartonella be that severe? Because the general public doesn't think Bartonella is really that big of a deal. You get bit. If you get sick, you take some antibiotics, you take something, you get better, right? But it's kind of mind-blowing how severe Bartonella can be, especially in conjunction with maybe Lyme, if it's from a tick or some other, you know, other illnesses as well. Matt, Rick alluded to the fact that, you know, we can have a somewhat different perspective on things from the veterinary medical side and then what's existing on the human medical side. And right now in the human medical textbooks, Bartonella is still pretty much cat scratch disease, although the transition from cat scratch disease to using the term Bartonellosis, which is much more inclusive, it involves any Bartonella species that might be causing disease. And right now, I think the current number is somewhere around 15 or 16. And I reviewed another manuscript on a new Bartonella species that I think the manuscript will ultimately be accepted um, causing human disease. The I, I do think it's appropriate to say that the best example for Bartonella causing disease is endocarditis. And that's a life-threatening infection of the heart valve. We're now up to eight or nine species of Bartonella that have caused endocarditis in humans. And they're transmitted from everything from rodents like a rat to a bat. And that becomes the other part of the problem in regard with Bartonella is unlike being able to focus on tick transmission, right now I believe Bartonellas are transmitted by more vectors based on the literature, not based on my opinion, than any other known pathogen. In regard to what you specifically asked me, which I'm not trying to avoid, is Bartonella and neurologic disease. And I, I think the best way to answer the question, we are absolutely in our infancy in starting to even understand what role this bacteria might play in neurologic disease. We've isolated it from cerebrospinal fluid. We've amplified and sequenced it from cerebrospinal fluid. Um, I'll relate one case later on if we have time um, that I think is going to be another very important case upon that'll help us better understand what's going on with Bartonella. But I, I do think it's a very important and, and the problem with Bartonella that I've actually said in national uh, and international lectures is the good news about Bartonella is in most instances, it will not kill you quickly. The bad news about Bartonella is that it can cause persistent infections. It can infect many different cells in the body, which means many different tissues, be it your brain, be it your heart, be it your heart valve, um, be it your joint where it's been isolated by us and others out of joints. Um, so it's, it, I think maybe when we get to look back 10, 15, 20 years down the road, 
the neurological disease will prove to be the most important of the Bartonella-associated disease, but it will not be the only one. So this is causing a lot of psychological issues, it's causing other neurological issues. And I think because we're focusing on Bartonella right now, you know, it's it's interesting that we've, a lot of other doctors have told us that it's the combination of these things together. So of course, Bartonella by itself can do one thing to the human body, but Bartonella with Borrelia, with biofilm and other viruses, they form this symbiotic relationship. And then we're finding it can do even more damage and even more neurological impairments, right? So I think it's important to look at the micro, what is Bartonella? How does it affect human beings? But we don't live in bubbles. We contract other illnesses and other pathogens as well. So when Bartonella is combined with other bugs or other bad things, how does it impact the human body neurologically, you know, your heart, your joints, et cetera. And I think you're right that we're in, we're in the infancy here. So as we start to have more studies, we'll start to be able to prove this out. But as Rich said, you know, we've, we've heard a lot of stories of Bartonella rage, for example, and we've been cautioned that, hey, we've heard of Lyme rage, we've heard of Bartonella rage. And people tell us it's not just Lyme disease that causes these neuropsychological rage fits. You know, Bartonella is known for that as well. And I think we need more studies to really prove that out to your point, Professor, as well. But I want to circle back to your comment about Bartonella being unique in having many vectors that can transmit, you know, vectors being beings that can transmit the disease from a, another animal to a human being, right? Specifically for the context of this conversation. So are you arguing that bats and cats and dogs and all and many, many animals can actually transmit Bartonella from that host to that animal to the human being? Well, it's very clear that cat scratch disease is a mechanism mechanically by which Bartonella can be transmitted to a human by a scratch or a bite. Um, there are a couple instances of dog bite transmission of Bartonella uh, published in the literature. The, the association with bats at this point uh, occurred maybe five years ago, Matt, when a fellow was at the Mayo Clinic. He ended up with what's called culture negative endocarditis, meaning they did blood cultures. The blood cultures were negative. Um, he ended up with a new heart valve. And when they got the heart valve out, they PCR Bartonella mayotinensis out of it. I know that's a big, fancy genus and species. But what it took us at that point, all as we knew was, hey, gee, there's this new Bartonella. It can cause endocarditis in a human. We don't know what the reservoir is, so we don't know where the thing came from, and we don't know the transmission. We now know the reservoir is a bat. So Mayotinensis has been found in bats in Central America, North America, and Europe. And Europe found them, found, made that association before we did um, on the North American continent. But we still don't know for sure how it's getting from the bat to the human. So. so is it possible, Professor, that it's getting from the bat to the human by a tick biting the bat and then a tick biting the human? Uh, I think that's possible. So how else would how else would the 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 bacteria get from a bat to a human when we have very little direct contact with bats? Or are there some folks in some populations that are having uh, some direct contact with bats? Well, there there's perhaps a little more direct contact with bats than most people realize. And, you know, a bat can literally bite someone and, you know, you would think you had an insect bite on your back and the back's gone. You never even saw the bat. Um, you know, 
obviously we're all very knowledgeable about bats in the context of rabies and that type concern. Right. Um, but there's a lot of different bat species, just like a lot of different tick species. And um, their behavior in regard to biting is all very different. So you could actually experience a bat bite and not know you were ever hit. Okay. Wow. So now one of the other things that was that I was thinking when Matt was beginning to ask you the questions is, can our immune system manage Bartonella in the way that it seems to be able to manage most of these other microbes? And then there needs to be some kind of an immunosuppressive event before it takes off? Or is it just a very slow moving acting bacteria before we become symptomatic? You know, I I was thinking about this earlier today in the context of our conversation. And, and one of the biases I've had as a veterinary internist you know, trying to understand these really complicated infections that are vector transmitted is the concept of a pathobiome versus a microbiome. And at least as a clinician, I hope that we all have microbiomes that, you know, are in our ear, in our armpit, in our intestinal tract. And we, although the microbiome might differ you know, for me sitting here in Raleigh and someone that's, you know, on the Mediterranean basin in Europe. Um, but to a great extent, we're going to share that microbiome and it's going to be made up of bacteria and other organisms that are not pathogenic in most instances and don't cause any disease in us. So it, my response to your question is, I'm hoping there's a finite number of organisms that actually transition that microbiome that we deal with every day through our immune system and all the protective mechanisms in our body um, to a pathobiome. And I do strongly believe that the vector-borne organisms, whether they're transmitted by a sandfly, a flea, a tick, or a human body louse, are capable of sticking an organism in that on an evolutionary basis, we haven't been adapted to handle as well as that overall microbiome. And then it turns us into a pathobiome with this very, some instances, very chronic progression. And then you've got the host side, which obviously you all have talked with physicians about in great detail, because none of us respond to that infection in exactly the same way. So, yeah. So one of the things that's unique about a tick bite is that the tick spit has unique uh, immunosuppressive principles. Um, and I'm wondering if in your opinion, do you believe um, A, whether or not getting um, Bartonella spit into you by a tick bite because of the unique principles of the tick spit may make it more likely that we become sick from, uh, chronically sick from the Bartonella? And B, do you think perhaps that we may be harboring the Bartonella and our and our and our uh, we are managing the Bartonella, but then when the other the other microbes uh, microbes are spit into us by a tick with the tick spit, that there is this as Matt was pointing out this sort of this 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 merging of these these uh, microbes which are now resulting in our immune system being overwhelmed in part because maybe they're 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 becoming supercharged in the uh, in the biofilm, or in part just because you know the the volume of microbes are um, are overwhelming to our immune system. 
I, I think the short answer is I believe both are likely impossible that you just described. Um, we were just recently funded to do a long COVID study uh, in collaboration with um, physicians in New York. So it's going to be a very nice and very structured study. So the reason we're involved is we will be using droplet digital PCR to amplify DNA of Bartonella, Borrelia, and Babesia. So Dr. Ricardo Maggi, a research scientist and professor, research professor here at NC State, developed and validated that. And it was published um, initially, the validation in the journal of Microbiological Methods, and then subsequently in a journal called Pathogens. But the reason we're doing that is what you said, Rich. I think you can have a chronic infection with Bartonella, Babesia, or Borrelia. And you can have a virus come along like COVID. And you, if you are infected with one, two, or three of those organisms, and perhaps other organisms that represent my pathobiome, then you're going to be one of the people that progressed along COVID versus the vast majority of people that get that viral infection um, and either only get a respiratory infection and get over it quickly, or they don't get sick at all or if they have comorbidities, as we well have learned from um, you know, being very old or having diabetes as examples, you are more likely to get extremely sick and end up in the hospital. So can I jump in on that real quick? I just wanna, because I think that's a really interesting point about people having things and then getting infected and then it's sort of the, com you know, the cumulative impact or the buildup impact of all the pathogens we have and in specifically regard to COVID. But I also think it's deeper than that. I think that some of us have different microbiomes. So for example, you know, I take a ton of antibiotics throughout my life and now my microbiome is altered. I have less variety of bacteria. And when I come into contact with a pathogen because of the less diverse microbiome I have, I'm less able to manage the pathogen because the microbiome is really important in, in fighting off infections, right? Do you believe that argument, Professor? Do you think that the, a, a less diverse microbiome due to maybe overuse of antibiotics is having an impact on people getting more sick when they come into contact with Bartonella and other things like COVID since their body now can't have the proper balance of microbes to fight it off. Like there was a study uh, with Lyme disease where they found that all chronic Lyme patients have an abundance of one bad uh, bacteria in the microbiome and uh, you know a really small amount of a bacteria that they should have that helps them fight infection in the microbiome that was consistent among all chronic Lyme patients. And that just came out a few years ago. So I think right. that may play a role here as well. What are your thoughts on that? Um, clearly, I think chronic infection can alter the normal microbiome of the intestinal tract and probably other microbiomes if we were to discuss it. Um, I, I think if... From, from my perspective, if you can eliminate that pathogen or combination of pathogens that induced likely immunosuppression or altered the immune modulation of the microbiome and upset the balance, so to speak, um, then I think the microbiome you know, will reconstitute itself in most instances. And, and Again, I'm no microbiome expert, but I've attended some seminars where even with probiotics, you know, it would change the microbiome transiently. As soon as you stop the probiotic, the microbiome would return to what it was pre-probiotic. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, you know, I, I think, again, if you think about what we eat and the fact that there's bacteria that are alive in a lot of the things we eat, um, you know, I'm probably biased because I grew up on a farm. I still live on a farm and I tend to have a lot of bacteria in my microbiome, I'm sure. Rich, you, do I... I don't want to keep jumping in on you, Rich. I saw you're about to talk before. So no, no, go ahead, man. I, I have many questions, but but I, I I don't want to move over to diagnostics yet. I, I why don't you finish your line and then I'll then I'll 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 move over to diagnostics. So yes, I, Matt, one one thing that you said earlier it, in our research essentially went cats, dogs, cows, horses, marine animals, and then humans. And the reason we started doing human research here at the College of Veterinary Medicine in collaboration with um, infectious disease physicians that I work with at Duke was when I would go out and lecture to veterinarians about what we were seeing, particularly in sick dogs, that was mimicking what was being seen in sick humans. If there was 100 veterinarians in the audience, I'd have six to 10 come up and say, can you test me? So that's, that's how we went to human medicine. We've actually published three studies now that involve veterinarians. And the reason I coming back to that is if you look at the study that we did with Duke, where we were completely blinded on the testing, Duke collected the samples from the veterinarians, Duke did all the statistical analysis, that anxiety, and we didn't have rage on our questionnaire, but we did have aggression, and we had anxiety and aggression in the same line, which we've subsequently separated. But statistically, they could put a p-value on that if we could find Bartonella DNA in the blood of that veterinarian. Wow. So, yeah. So do I think I do I think my profession will be the sentinels or the canaries in the coal mine by which human medicine better understands the genus Bartonella? Absolutely. Well, we we thank you for that. We're sorry you're the you're the, uh, <laughs> the canaries in the uh, in the mine, but um, you know and and and. So, so if if uh, when I when I go to my veterinarian or my companion animals, if if um, if I find my vet to be a little off, it may be because uh, the the vet is the uh, the canary in the uh, in the mine. Well, Rich, we have we have mold personalities, we have Lyme rage, and now we have altered personalities and anxiety from Bartonella. So there's a lot of a lot of different players here that can impact the emotions and the personalities of human beings because of of tick borne illnesses or vector borne illnesses, right? Yeah. But yeah. I want to stick with the theme. I, I, there's so much more I want to explore here. The, the, you know, we talked about the diversity of people's reactions to Bartonella. And is it A, because they have other pathogens and then compounded, they get sick. And we talked about that. Then we talked about maybe less diverse microbiomes having an impact on the severity of illness as well. But the expanding upon that idea, I feel like the diversity of the species or the type of Bartonella has to matter as well. Because again, kind of comparing it to Lyme disease, there are studies out there that say various species of Lyme disease are more known to impact various systems of the body. So for example, one strain may make you more, no more neurologically impaired. Another strain may primarily give you the joint pain and things like that, but never really cross the blood-brain barrier and, co and cause neurological symptoms. So you mentioned there were so many different strains of Bartonella that you've discovered and probably more that we don't even know about. Do you think, Professor, that these strains are having an impact on how they really result in symptoms in the human model, model and also the animal model that you're seeing? So. The answer to that question is definitely yes. Um, in as much as if we use Bartonella hensilae, the cause of cat scratch disease, there's at least eight 
different strains of Bartonella hensilae that we've been able to identify within the United States. And some of those based on clinical experiences more than laboratory structured studies appear to be more virulent or more pathogenic in causing disease. So in regard to a single species, the answer is yes. If we go though and look at different Bartonella species, there really is a pattern that is, I think, best amplified or understood by the endocarditis data. And that's the fact that, you know, if we put a dog on one side of my slide and a human on one on the other side, I can match eight Bartonella species that have caused endocarditis in dogs and endocarditis in humans. So, and they're coming out of, as I mentioned earlier in our chat, they can come out of anything from a cat reservoir, a rat reservoir, a bat reservoir, a rabbit reservoir. Um, so that's, and, 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 you know, I think we don't have enough data to, to be able to extend that very far um, beyond endocarditis. We clearly don't, right now in regard to central nervous system disease in humans, Bartonella hensilae seems to be the big player. And only rarely will we find anything else in my lab um, that we can correlate to a neurologic presentation. And just for the clarification, endocarditis is really when, when the Bartonella enters the heart and it attaches to weakened part of the heart, causing inflammation, and then it causes cardiac-related issues, correct? Am I explaining that correctly? That's very correct. And the only caveat would be that localization is to a heart valve. And again, if we talk about you know, comparative medicine, in humans, we have four valves in our heart, and 80% of Bartonella endocarditis involves the aortic valve. In dogs, there's four valves in the heart and structurally very similar to the human, and 80% of dogs with Bartonella endocarditis targets the aortic valve, this very high-pressure valve. So there's, there's a lot of comparative information that, you know, again, I follow the human literature, obviously, because there's a lot more human research funding out there extremely carefully. And then I look at my veterinary patients and see what I can find. But I also think, and I'll use one example, is myocarditis. Um, human medicine has not yet looked at the extent to which Bartonella can infect the actual heart muscle and cause cardiac arrhythmias. And clearly, if we look at what we've done in cats and dogs, this organism can actually infect the muscle and not infect the valve at all. So it seems like this is, an, you know, I will quote some of our, our past podcast guests. Dr. Kelly called it, I think I forget what you called it, evil. Dr. McDonald called it diabolical, you know, referring to the Lyme bacteria. But I think Bartonella is the same because not only is Bartonella going and invading the heart in various ways, as you, you just described, right? It can be the heart muscle, it can be the valves potentially, and there's a lot more research that has to be done there, but it's also intracellular, right? So, I, and, and Lyme disease, you know, is, is extracellular, but also intracellular and how Lyme works with Borelli-Burgdorferi. But I know, and I, I think I know, and I'm gonna ask you to confirm that Bartonella is intracellular, meaning it infects the inside of the cells. It penetrates the cell wall and goes inside making it harder for the immune system to detect and then be able to really take care of it, right? And can you just, can you confirm that? And if so, how does the immune system respond to that to then go try to eradicate Bartonella, you know, in 
collaboration with maybe antibiotics or whatever therapy of choice somebody uses to treat uh, treat Bartonella? So there's no question about the fact that Bartonella is a predominantly intracellular organism um, once it enters the host. And the other aspect that I think we can confirm from in vitro studies, laboratory studies, is that Bartonella is capable of infecting many, many different cells in the body. Um, importantly, it can infect erythrocytes, which again, carry oxygen throughout every small vessel in our body. So that means if it can get into a red blood cell, it can literally get into any microcapillary system in the body. It also infects endothelium. So it, it, it can be in the lining of the blood vessels, and then it can infect almost every professional macrophage type cell. These are cells that are, their job is to engulf bacteria, ingest bacteria and kill bacteria. And Bartonella can get into those cells, but it doesn't kill them, including work that we did a number of years ago on microglia, which is the essentially macrophage in the brain that ingests bacteria. And so a lot of the work that's ongoing in the laboratory now with the PhD students and the research scientists that I'm fortunate to have working with me um, is exactly what you're saying, Matt. We're looking at what's this bacteria do when it gets into the cell? How does it manipulate the cell? How does it induce this persistent infection? Um, and can we come up with a more creative way to kill it once it's in the cell or force so, it to come out of the cell where the immune system can? Professor, you're just highlighting how this is a very diabolical infection, right? I mean, we had, we just last month, we had several, we had a researcher month for Lyme Awareness Month, and we had several researchers on the podcast. And one of the things they were trying to explore was Lyme, Lyme disease is, is so difficult because our normal defense systems fail us when it comes to Lyme, when it doesn't fail us when it comes to other diseases that we catch, right? And one of the ways they described that was the macrophages that come in, we'll call it like in the beginning of the process where they're supposed to recognize these damaged cells, maybe that have Bartonella infections, they just gobble them up. They just eat up these, these damaged cells. So are you saying that Bartonella infects the immune cells, the macrophages that are supposed to be gobbling up damaged or infected cells like Lyme infected cells as well? So is that, there's that weird correlation where you can have a Lyme infected cell and the macrophage that's supposed to go gobble it up is infected with Bartonella if you get both. And now there, there's that symbiotic weird relationship between the two. Is that, is that, or am I totally making this up in my head? You can tell me I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to go quite as far as you did, Matt. Um, you know, it, it's, there's no, no question that, you know, there's a lot of these macrophage type cells in the body. Some are in the skin and they're called dendritic cells in the brain, they're microglia in our, um, systemic circulation, they're called monocytes. In the liver, they're called for cells. They're all there to do what you said. They're there to recognize any bacteria or protozoa or pathogen that comes along and to try to get it before it ever gets into a cell. Once it gets into the cell, you know, we're almost talking about, you know, a cancer association. The only way to get rid of it then is to kill the cell. And that is really tough. You know, a, a lot of the Lyme doctors, you know, will ask the question, 
you know, what, what can we do to drive the Bartonella out of the cell to get it in the blood to be able to detect it by, you know, DNA and culture mechanisms, mechanisms. And unfortunately, there's a lot of opinions there, but there's not much science or that or studies that I've ever seen that would really help us answer that question. It's a very useful question, you know, from a diagnostic standpoint and being able to confirm the infection. Also, I would say that we haven't done a very good job with identifying the immunosuppressive effects of Bartonella, but there's certainly good pieces of the literature out there in areas of the world where Lyme disease doesn't occur. For, for example, in the mountains in Peru, um, they had Bartonella bacilliformis, and they their literature frequently talks about having Bartonella and co-infection with Mycobacterium tuberculosis. Guess where Mycobacterium tuberculosis resides primarily in our body, in the macrophages. So to an extent, you may be absolutely right to say scientifically that, um, you know, the, the Bartonella is interfering with the elimination of Borrelia or vice versa. Um, it, it would take a lot, it would take some good immunologists, which I'm not one, um, and a fair amount of work to, to sort that out a bit. So, Professor, let's let's talk a little bit about um, the population. You know, what percentage of the human population may be harboring um, the Bartonella, some strain of Bartonella in their um, in their pathobiome? And you're the first person, by the way, to ever talk to us about pathobiomes. So I yes. do want to discuss that with you, um, because we, you know, some some very uh, I think highly respected um, uh, researchers were able to I think definitively demonstrate that 15% of the world's population has been um, has been uh, affected by Lyme disease, at least a one strain of Lyme disease, um, based on uh, based on um, the uh, uh, the antibodies that they were able to uh, discover when when doing that research. It seems to me that Bartonella may be even um, uh, more um, likely to be uh, a part of our um, our pathobiome because there are just so many different ways that it it can be transmitted. Uh, unlike uh, you know the, the 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 very limited ways that Lyme disease could be, uh, or you know the the, the Borrelia could be um, transmitted. So, give me your thoughts. Uh, you know, a whether or not there's any research that suggests what percentage of the population is, and b if there isn't any research, um, what percentage of the population do you believe? Um, could be could be uh, harboring this bacteria. So early on, I actually believed you had to be a tick person, you know, a parasitologist or entomologist out there collecting ticks um, or fleas or being in that type where you're having a lot of exposure to the arthropods or you had to be a veterinarian um, or someone in animal agriculture to be exposed to Bartonella and then to potentially be infected and then potentially maintain a patent and long-term infection. I think most people exposed to Bartonella eliminate the infection. So I clearly hope that is the case and believe that is the case. But I have now, based on you know, 30 years of looking at the genus Bartonella, come to believe that probably very few of us can get through life without ever being exposed to 
and infected with a Bartonella. The best, I think, data out there right now, and this study just came out kind of for the second time. So a number of years ago, a physician in Brazil contacted me because one of the PhD students in my laboratory um, was from Brazil. And we had developed some techniques diagnostically that made it a little easier to find Bartonella in the blood. And he wanted to apply that to a blood donor study. So um, the, the biggest challenge we had was to get the insect biochemical composition growth media that we developed and validated to grow Bartonella better to Brazil because I don't speak Portuguese and doing all those forms was a little complicated. Um, but at any rate, we got it down there. They did a blood donor study. We co-published that study. And with the techniques that were used, about 3% of Brazilian blood donors in Sao Paulo had Bartonella, either Hensilae predominantly, and then one had Bartonella clerigiae, which is another cat-associated, flea-associated Bartonella. They went back and just, and this was just published last week, and revisited that study, and we weren't involved, but they used multiple molecular targets to go back to the DNA that they had obtained from those individuals' blood and from their cultures. And they bumped that up to about eight to 15%, depending on how you wanted to find the data. So, you know, that says that there's blood donors likely in North America, and there's clearly blood donors in San Paulo, Brazil, that have Bartonella in their blood. These are presumably healthy people that are donating blood. So now the um I, I guess the 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 question that I'm you know that that I'm I'm wondering is um because it's known as cat scratch fever, um is it likely that that uh that every one of us who has uh you know has a cat as a companion animal um may be regularly coming in contact with this bacteria? So the, the good news is most pet cats do not have Bartonella in their blood. Um, the, the good news, as well as we understand the science, is that a cat has to be exposed to fleas to become infected. And not only that, the cat has to have fleas on it to be a reservoir for transmission. So the way that works is the flea takes a blood meal um, the Bartonella actually increase in the flea's intestinal tract, but the Bartonella are viable in the flea's feces. And I know we don't like to think too much about fleas and feces, but that red stuff that's on your dog or your cat is actually the fecal material from the blood that was taken by the flea, digested and put there. And then through grooming, the cat and dog get, you know, the dog would get it in its mouth, but the cat would get it on the nails. And that nail becomes a hypodermic needle to inject Bartonella into us. I so, had no idea. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. That, that's that's very well established. Um, yeah. So uh, we know there are some difficulties with diagnosing Lyme disease uh, or or Borrelia because of the um, you know the many of the unique characteristics of that bacteria. Absolutely. It's our understanding that it's the same thing with Bartonella. Bartonella is very difficult to test because Bartonella is also a bacteria that's very good at hiding. So can you share with us the diagnostic challenges associated with diagnosing this disease and 
whether or not you believe that the study that you just shared with us, which is indicating that somewhere between nine and 15% of the people who were blood donors were harboring uh, that bacteria, perhaps could it be much higher? Um, and, and, and the results came in um, at you know really alarming levels if it's as high as 15%, but perhaps yeah. it's even higher because the testing uh, tools are not great. So we have a bit of an advantage with the biological behavior of Bartonella compared to Borrelia burgdorferi. And I think it's, although Borrelia burgdorferi does enter the bloodstream and it may well stay in the bloodstream at extremely low levels based on Eva Sapi's work, um, that we haven't had the technology to be able, especially in a diagnostic setting, to confirm those infections. But the, the difference is Bartonella does stay in the bloodstream. It just doesn't do it constantly. And, you know, trench fever, which is caused by Bartonella quintana, was called five-day fever because those guys in the trench would get the fever, then it would resolve five days later, they'd be febrile and sick again, then it was resolved. And this would go on several cycles before the immune system finally kicked in and the organism stopped changing its surface characteristics to the point that immunity would, would take hold. It's, it's similar with relapsing fever Borrelia, right? They're, they are not thought to behave like Borrelia burgdorferi and end up in the, in the muscles, the skin, the connective tissues, um, and they can be found in the blood. So one advantage we have with Bartonella is that the organisms in the blood, at least more often than Borrelia burgdorferi. So the first technique we looked at, which was literally from a lab meeting where we were astounded by the increasing number of vectors that people were saying could transmit Bartonella. And in the lab meeting, I said, it seems like they're a lot happier in the vector the arthropod vectors than they are in us because we're having such a hard time proving whether these sick veterinarians have it or don't have Bartonella in their blood. Why don't we try an insect biochemical composition growth media rather than what all microbiology labs in the world use, which is a mammalian growth media? So the answer to that question, strangely enough, became yes, and it does enhance. And we just published another paper showing that the insect media does better than using a mammalian growth media. And also, most importantly, if you add blood to that system, you can make them grow a whole lot better again. So um, that's, that's an, and, and I guess that comes down to the concept of direct detection. The, the controversy, in my opinion, in regard to Lyme disease clearly relates to the limitations of the diagnostics. And the limitations were that we were stuck with serology. And serology can only say you've been exposed to an organism. It cannot definitively say that you have that organism in your body. And it cannot definitively say that that organism is causing your disease. Now, we use it to say that the organism's in your body because sometimes we don't have a better test than a serologic test for many infectious diseases. But with the advent of molecular testing and being able to amplify DNA 
and being able to put a DNA fingerprint on an organism and say, this organism's in your blood, then that gives a physician, a veterinarian, a clinician, any clinician, more data to associate and point towards causation. Because what we're really worried about with any chronic illness is, is this thing causative or not? And so, so we do have an advantage. And again, we went through conventional PCR, um, what is called real-time or quantitative PCR. And then we were wrong among the first laboratories in the world before COVID came up, thanks to a grant from the Cohen Foundation to look at digital PCR, which is the new generation PCR that has, again, up sensitivity. And that has helped us find DNA actually of Bartonella borrelia and Babesia to an extent that we were never able to do before. But are these tests mainstreamed, right? I mean, these are, I know we, we in your research, you talk about the Bartonella DD-PCR test, the digital PCR test, and in, we're going to get to in a little bit your, your research with Bartonella and schizophrenia and Bartonella and Borrelia and Tourette's. But is this available for the general public or are you using this, you know, for your research studies, but it's not available to somebody who thinks they may have Bartonella. And that's why maybe the numbers are still lower than we think they are. So, yeah, I, I think COVID, you know, has kind of been a stimulus for molecular diagnosis, kind of like us putting a man on the moon. Um, honestly, a lot of money went into it, a lot of effort went into it, and some good diagnostic things have come out of that, particularly in the context of molecular diagnostic tests that allow us to find the needle in a haystack. And so um, it is not readily available out there. There are not a lot of commercial laboratories doing digital PCR and Galaxy Diagnostics, the company that I helped start, is the only company that does enrichment followed by digital PCR, to my knowledge, at this point in time, because, you know, it, it, I, I guess, you know, whether I'm here in the research lab or my interaction with the company, when we say Bartonella, yes or no, um, I said this to Ricardo Maggi when he joined me as a postdoc 20 years ago. Ricardo, I'm a clinician. I'm going to bring you a sample. I'm going to give that sample to you, and I want you to tell me Bartonella DNA is in this sample, yes or no, and I want you to be right 98% of the time. That was 20 years ago, and we can't do that still, but we can do it better than anybody in the world. So you're you're working, you form help form Galaxy Diagnostics. That's a lab we hear often out there as a recommended lab for not only Bartonella, but Lyme and other tick-borne illnesses as well. So are you still involved with Galaxy Diagnostics? I am still the chief scientific officer of Galaxy Diagnostics. Um and um, you know, again, it's it's a conflict of interest for me as a researcher. Um, but you know, I honestly Galaxy Diagnostics came to pass because my son was taking a business course in law school and he needed a project and NC State had put a patent on BAPGM and I couldn't get anyone in veterinary medicine or human medicine in diagnostics and I knew people in both arenas to take this insect growth media and see if they could use it commercially, you know, to help diagnose people. And so 
you know, Galaxy Diagnostics actually occurred because of a UNC business course that my law school son was taking um, where they had a Carolina challenge. And uh, I kind of got roped into that. And, you know, it's been an amazing journey that is beyond um, our conversation here. But it's it's been one of those journeys if you're on a really fast roller coaster that goes really high and then just drops. I, that would describe my experience with uh, Galaxy Diagnostics. Well, I just want to thank you for that, because it's researchers like yourself who produce the best commercial businesses to help people that are sick and help them get definitive answers. So Galaxy Diagnostics has helped countless people prove they have Lyme and co-infections when other tests are failing them. And we hear it all the time. And you're no different than Professor Stephen Rich, right, who, you know, through his work, created Tick Report, you know, the tick testing lab. And now that's, again, you mentioned the conflict of interest, right? He had to get approval from his legal department to make sure he could even talk about it on the podcast, which he thankfully he was able to. But, you know, he used his research and created Tick Report. And again, identifying what pathogens are in a tick after a tick bite have helped countless people ensure they don't get sick and take proper steps to treat the infection that they were infected with. So it's people that are at the ground level doing the research and the hands-on work you're doing that have real world applications to help people like us. So I'm just really happy to hear that. And thank you for doing that for our community. Thanks, Matt. I, I really appreciate that because, you know, that it's, I, I mean, as you well understand the controversy that exists around Lyme disease, um, I'm sure Bartonella is right behind it to a great extent, um, if not already there in some corners. Um, you know, it, it, again, it's the reason that I think there's 180 some manuscripts from my research group that have Bartonella in the title. And we try to put everything out there because that's my job here at the university. If I'm doing research, it's to be shared worldwide. But, you know, my little laboratory here at NC State can't test more than a very small, finite number of people. And if that technology, you know, if again, my son, who usually called me when he wanted something, which was, hey, dad, can we use your patent as a project? Um, Galaxy wouldn't exist. And, you know, that technology wouldn't exist um, and be available. And, and it's it's not perfect. As, as I said, Ricardo and I started, you know, 20 years ago when he joined me, when I walked out of the clinic and he said, what do you really want me to do now that I'm here? And I said, I want you to tell me whether there's Bartonella in this blood sample from this dog or cat, and I want you to be right 98% of the time. That's wild. I so Matt, let me let me ask the professor one question about the downstream um, downstream issues that we, we talked about. So the, I'd like to talk about the human to human transmission of Bartonella, uh, because one of the things that we deal with all the time in the, when we're, when we're discussing Borrelia is uh, some of the controversy surrounding human to human transfer, right? So uh, we know that it's clear that the research is, is definitively demonstrating that Borrelia can be transmitted um, congenitally mother to child. And, 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 and I think the debate is, is uh, in our rear view mirror on that issue. Um, we, we know, uh, uh, and, and I think there's, there's less debate that it can be transmitted through blood transfusions uh, in the way that it clearly can be transmitted for Bartonella. Uh, and then there's this conversation about sexual transmission, uh, whether or not uh, uh, Borrelia can be transmitted sexually, and there's certainly a fair amount of research that's demonstrated 
that uh, the, the Borrelia bacteria has been found in, in vag vaginal secretions and in, um, and in uh, sperm. Uh, there is some debate, though, about whether or not <clears throat> the volume of, uh, of Borrelia uh, is adequate in, with sexual contact. Um, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering if you could comment on your thoughts, because there are so many different ways that this that the bacteria you're studying, or Bartonella in particular, can be transmitted. Um, uh, do you do you believe that human-to-human uh, -human contact, in addition to blood, is likely either through congenital um, and or sexual um, transmission? So we published a case report involving a family in New York in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology um, probably 10 years ago. And I, I think it, again, as a practicing veterinary internist, I learned sometimes more from a single case than I learned from this gigantic case series. And I, I think that particular study, and again, Journal of Clinical Microbiology is an extremely high impact journal in microbiology. And it is one where the peer reviews are extremely rigorous. Um, so the fact that it was published, I think most people would say, well, the science must be fairly solid. So the story there was a mother who literally had very great difficulties becoming pregnant, ultimately um, through in vitro fertilization became pregnant and had twins. Unfortunately, one of the twins died at nine days of age. And 10 years later, I got a phone call from the mother and she asked me if it was possible that she and her son, the remaining twin, the other one was a little girl, um, could possibly have Bartonella and could they have had it for the previous 10 years. So my response to that, like so many questions about Bartonella is, gee, I don't know. But we did enter the family into our IRB study. And we tested father, mother, son, and then worked with a pathologist in New York who did the autopsy on the ch child to get tissues to test. And we found the exact same Bart two Bartonella species in the mother and in the son and in the baby that died. Wow. So Bartonella hanselae, which is a cat-associated Bartonella, and Bartonella vinsonii burkhoffi, which to a great extent we consider a canine-adapted Bartonella that you can find in dogs, coyotes, wild, wild canids. Um, and then the father, we only got one Bartonella out of. So, you know, that... We've published other families, including families in Denmark, families in Holland, and families in Canada, where there were multiple family members infected with Bartonella. And, you know, it's, as you guys have already alluded to, there's too many ways you might become infected with a Bartonella to be able to do a case-based family study and actually understand how each family member and when each family member became infected. But I think that paper in the Journal of Clinical Microbiology says that a mother, that the children were born by cesarean sections, so it's entitled perinatal. Um, 
infection with Bartonella hensley and Bartonella vinsonii burkhoffi. So, so one of one of the arguments that we often hear, in fact, I think uh, Brian Fallon had argued in his book on Lyme disease that um, he does not believe that Lyme disease can be sexually transmitted, and his argument about why we're seeing uh, the same uh, strain of Lyme in sexual partners is because they're living, they're both living in a tick endemic community, and they're likely being bitten by the same ticks with the harboring the same bacteria. I'm wondering from the from the research that you've done and the study that you specifically cited, um, whether or not uh, you made any, um, you were able to make any uh, conclusions about the sexual transmission of the disease in light of the fact that both the mother and the father in that case had the disease, yet the children only had the two strains that the mother had. And of course, the deceased infant probably could not have had that, uh, you know, could not have had that disease from having outside contact that it was only because the baby lived such a short period of time. It could have only come from the mother. I think I know Brian Fallon. I have tremendous respect for him um, and all the amazing research he's done and published. Um, I think we need a lot more research funding and we need our government agencies looking into the potential of transmission because those are very complicated studies. They have to be structured extremely well, but they need to be done and they need to be done for Borrelia burgdorferi and they need to be done for Bartonella. And I think um, I can tell you that one of the PhD students in my laboratory, the, the question exists whether cats can transmit Bartonella from the mother to the offspring. And so we published, she did the work, we published the paper, um, I guess two years ago now, where we could demonstrate in cats that were feral cats where there's a high prevalence of Bartonella. So I mentioned earlier, if you have a pet cat, the chances of it having Bartonella is very low. But if I go bleed cats that are feral along the coast of North Carolina, I can probably get a isolate from every other cat. Wow. So at least 50%, maybe as high as 66% of those cats are going to have Bartonella in them. So when rescue groups go out and catch them and they spay them, do an ovarial hysterectomy, take the uterus and the fetus out so that there's not more and more feral cats out there we've been able to get those tissues and demonstrate that there's Bartonella hensley DNA in the fetus. So what we didn't do in those studies, because that was kind of our first look at that, was to determine whether that was still a viable bacteria. It, you know, I think our reasoning is it almost has to be, or how the heck did it get there? But, you know, that is actually a study that this same PhD student now is extending with an undergraduate student that uh, is in our lab this summer. So we do believe that, you know, and, and it's well known that um, perinatal maternal transmission occurs in rodent species with Bartonella's. So I, I, again, the important thing to realize is the placentation, you know, the, what the, the barriers that prevent an infectious agent get across is different in, you know, a rat, a cat, and a human, let's say. So, um, yeah. So if you were to speculate about sexual transmission, 
and I know, and I am asking you to speculate. Uh, what Rich, you're your, pushing them too hard, Rich. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what, what would your What would your gut tell you about sexual transmission of uh, Bartonella? So I, I'll tell you one more story, and then um, I'll give you my gut, um, which I don't like to do. But we were asked to so so. Some years ago, a physician contacted me about his son who had an unusual type of cancer that's called an epithelioid hemangioendothelioma. Um, it's a vasoproliferative cancer. And that cancer has an increased level of a hormone that's called vascular endothelial growth factor. And we know that Bartonella makes cells make vascular VEGF, this vascular endothelial growth factor. So we ended up testing his son to see if by chance the son had Bartonella in association with his cancer because of this high VEGF level. And the answer to that question was yes. And it actually ended up being Bartonella vinsonii burkhoffi, which was the Bartonella that we first discovered in the world and in a dog. So as a result of that, it, we published that paper and a, I was contacted by a physician in Australia who had a patient who had an epithelioid hemangioendothelioma in her liver. And I know Rick's saying, what the heck does this have to do with my question? No, I, I know exactly what it means. I love this. Yeah. So she had a mate. Um, we tested her and she had Bartonella. She had a different one. She had Bartonella hensilae. The one over here had Bartonella vinsonii burkhoffi. We ultimately tested another EHE patient in England, and that one had Bartonella hensilae. Um, but the mate of this woman that had epithelioid hemangioendothelioma, and they said they were very sexually active, also ended up with the same Bartonella species and strain as we found in the girl with the tumor. So either he was a really unlucky guy and he found it before that. Or, yes, I do think that sexual transmission Bartonell is possible. Do we have real data to say that? Um, no. Well, we, have some, we have some data to, to suggest that, that that is the case. And we have some data to suggest that it's, it's, it's a possibility. Yes. But is there, is there data there also that's suggesting that the Bartonella triggered the cancer? Is that what I heard? Or am I, am I mistaken there as well? Um, so... Again, one advantage of being a veterinarian is I can play on both sides of the equation to a certain extent. Um, so if we've, the, the most, the third most important cancer that occurs in dogs is called an amangiosarcoma. And it's a vascular tumor that is most often in the spleen or right at the base of the heart. And so as a result of AIDS patients developing these vasoproliferative lesions that are called vascularia angiopatosis, which is where Bartonella was first discovered, on the veterinary side, we started looking at hemangiosarcomas and asking the question, could a dog with an hemangiosarcoma have Bartonella in his blood? And the first study that we did probably 10 years ago, um, we looked at Babesia, Bartonella, and hematrobic mycoplasmas, which are all organisms that are in the blood. And the only one that had a high prevalence was Bartonella, and that was 26% in dogs with sarcoma, with 0% wow. in normal spleens. But the study that we did more recently that was a great collection of samples in the comparative oncology 
repository at the National Institute of Health, which no longer exists because of lack of funding, they eliminated that. It went up to 74%. So if a dog has a mangiosarcoma, I've got a 74% chance, or the good people in my lab have a 74% chance of saying we can find Bartonella DNA in the blood, in the serum, in the tissues of the tumor, or in non-tumor tissue. Does that say that it's, because your question, Matt, I think was, are you telling me that this thing may be able to cause cancer? And I think it is possible that it is a cause or a cofactor of vasoproliferative cancers. And I think hemangiosarcoma may give us enough evidence ultimately that this will be a the second bacteria in the history of microbiology that is perhaps directly able to induce a cancer. But if you put bacteria and cancer in, you'll find a whole lot of papers on how bacteria can cause cancer through multiple pathways. Yeah, and, and the work that Ava Shapi is doing as well, you mentioned her earlier, right? She's spending her summer researching this and about to publish her paper on I think it's endometrial cancer and breast cancer and the Lyme disease the, uh, connection, right? And then you have Dr. Alan McDonald who's been doing this research as well. And now your research with Bartonella and cancer. So I think you're right that there's so many infectious connections to cancer. And the more we study this, the more we're going to find a variety of infections, including multiple tick-borne illnesses that can trigger cancer in, in the human model. But I do want to circle back. You talked earlier, Professor, about the trench fever and how it would go on a five-day cycle. And trench fever, it was from a form of Bartonella. And you'd be sick for five days with the fever, and then you'd be good and then for five days. And the cycle would happen, and the Bartonella would change its expression every five days until the immune system caught on, and you developed immunity from the immune system. Now, I want to talk more about the term immunity, because we had Professor Nicole Baumgarthon, who is the head of the tick-borne disease unit over at Johns Hopkins. And, you know, she's the one to talk to us about how when you have Lyme, your human defenses, many of them don't react the way they should with Lyme disease. And the other way she described this was you have long-term immune cells and the long-term immune cells come from your lymph and your lymph node specifically. And Lyme disease is known, and I quote her because I thought it was fascinating, Lyme, she's been able to prove that Lyme can obliterate lymph cells and the lymph cells then don't produce long-term immune cells to have long-term immunity to Lyme disease. And therefore, if you're bit by a tick, you get Lyme disease through any whatever therapeutic model and your immune system together, you develop antibodies to it. And that's what the Western blot is, right? Now, a year later, you get bit, you get reinfected. She said, if, you're, if your lymph nodes weren't obliterated and your immune system did what it was supposed to do, you would have long-term immunity longer than a year to Lyme disease, and you likely wouldn't get reinfected. That's another way Lyme sort of overcomes the natural defenses of the immune system. So I look at this as, do you think Bartonella is the same way? Because you can get reinfected with Bartonella as well, right? So you can get bitten get by a tick, you can get, you know, whatever, all these vectors out there, and a year later, get reinfected again. So do you think there's overlap and similarities in that regard as to why you can get reinfected time and time again with Bartonella? and you don't develop these long-term memory cells, as, as uh, Professor Baumgart called them? Well, Professor Baumgart is a veterinarian, and she's done brilliant research in regard to Lyme disease, and, and she's an exquisite immunologist. I wish she'd start looking at Bartonella, to be honest with you. Um, and, and, and I think she and other immunologists will, will be doing that. So we actually have good answers to the question that, that you just just ask. We do know that 
And this, you know, what I really would hope, and I've suggested to veterinary pharmacy, which they're pharmaceutical companies, which they are not yet convinced that Bartonella is important enough to consider, um, is to be able to develop a vaccine. So if we can vaccinate a dog and a cat, and they can't be a reservoir for Bartonella, one, they can't get the Bartonella-associated diseases, and two, they can't be a reservoir. Just, just like if your dog and cat's vaccinated for rabies, there's a very, very minimal chance that that animal can ever be a source of rabies for you, even if it's bit by a rabid raccoon or a rabid skunk, because it's going to be protected and you're, there's not going to be any transmission. So, um, as so, where I'm going with that is we do that's going to be a problem with vaccine development because we know that we can infect a cat with Bartonella hensilae one strain treat it, not be able to find it, and infect it with a second strain, and we can find that second strain. So if, if we can't even protect a cat, if a cat's immune system cannot protect it from a second strain of the same species, and we've got all these different species that we really need to ultimately be able to protect, in regard to vaccine development, it's, it's going to be a big challenge. It doesn't mean like any other challenge that it's insurmountable. Um, but it's 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 going to be a much bigger challenge than the Lyme vaccine, and you know the story there. Yes. Well, I know there's two other really important topics we need to discuss with you, Professor. And the first one is your work with Bartonella and Borrelia, with the grant you received, and how it's related to pediatric Tourette syndrome. So can you share with us the work you did there and what your discoveries were? So, and... And Matt, you probably recognize this. We published a case report on a young man with pediatric acute onset neuropsychiatric disease. And that's actually pans, right? So we hear, we hear pots, uh, pots, pans, and that, that's, we see that more prominently in children with Lyme, but that's something that's a neuropsychological uh, impairment, correct? Absolutely. Okay. And th this young man actually um, ended up being tested by us because he had unusual skin lesions, um, just like Lyme causes unusual skin lesions, it, it does appear that Bartonella hensilae might be able to cause a spectrum of skin lesions, but these particular lesions that have been referred to as Bartonella tracts or Bartonella stria, um, which the dermatologists very much object to because stria means stretch marks essentially um, to them due to obesity or pregnancy or where tissues get stretched and then they, they come back. So um, I, I think that plus the fact that we published several reports on neurologic disease in veterinarians was kind of the momentum for us to then move on and start trying to obtain funding for systematic studies where we looked at populations where there was a diagnosis, be it PANS or schizophrenia, um, or Tourette syndrome, or or what have you. So, they we went from the Pans case, which I've recently suggested some people probably has done more. Um, they they've made that into a video that's called Swamp Boy, and that's become a very popular video. And it's probably done more to put Bartonella on the map than all the research publications that exist in PubMed relative to, to Bartonella. But that, I think, 
allowed us to get enough funding to be able to start looking at neuropsychiatric illness. And we did a study with UNC Neurology and particularly with the neurobiologist there, Dr. Flavio Froelich. And statistically, that if you were a patient at UNC with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, we could prove by dropping a digital PCR that you had Bartonella DNA in your blood. So we are doing another study now, actually with Dr. Shannon Delaney and Brian Fallon at Columbia University, um, that hopefully will be finished in the next month or two. And um, we're blinded, so I don't know what it will say, but it's a very nice study because we've got a much larger cohort. The study at UNC got interrupted because of a little pandemic that occurred and it shut down people with schizophrenia were not going to UNC because they didn't want to get COVID, obviously. So um, I'm very excited that, again, with funding through the Cohen Foundation now to support the effort, we're doing all the testing blinded on that study. Um, we, as I mentioned, are initiating a long COVID study, and we've got another very large veterinary cohort study that we're going to apply our newest and more most advanced diagnostic testing too. The Tourette study, unfortunately, didn't really get off the ground. And um, it was because, again, post-pandemic, we just couldn't get the children entered into the study and the parents to agree. And that, again, was a collaborative study with UNC. So um, after about a year's worth of effort and very few entries, we the study was just terminated. But let's talk about the study you referenced with Bartonella and people with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. You're, and I think those results have been published, right? That 12 of the 17 patients with schizophrenia had Bartonella DNA from the digital PCR testing in contrast to the control group where only one in 13 had Bartonella, correct? That is correct. I mean, that's huge. I mean, that right there is like screaming at you that that, that Bartonella diagnosis has a clear connection to the to the psychological, neuropsychological condition, but yet there's some sort of, there's this haze I'm having right now, I'm trying to describe, right? Because so many people have Bartonella. You said earlier, probably a large percentage of the population has Bartonella. Why do some people get Bartonella and their immune system can manage it? They don't even know they have it or they go out their merry life. Other people get Bartonella and 12 of the 17 of these people with schizophrenic disorder or schizoaffective disorder end up having Bartonella and it causes severe, severe problems like schizophrenia or PANS or maybe Tourette's. So why is there such a contrast where people can get it and overcome it so easily and other people get so sick, right? And that's what I'm still struggling to understand. Um, I think it goes back to that pathobiome. I think it goes to that multiple hit hypothesis where, you know, you might have any one of these vector-borne organisms, and you're healthy enough to be a blood donor, right? We screen blood donors in the United States now for Babesia microti because the data was generated through PCR to be able to say there's enough people, particularly in Lyme endemic areas, because the same tick transmitting microti is transmitting Borrelia burgdorferi, that the government and you know everyone agreed that blood donors from those areas in particular ought to be screened to make sure that we're not transmitting Babesia-infected blood. 
Those are healthy people around there with that organism. Yet you can wake up one morning with Babesia microti in your blood, get hit by a car, and be in the ICU hemolyzing all your erythrocytes in your blood because something then that there, there's a term that I think was used more in veterinary medicine than human medicine, and it relates to Babesia, and it's a term called premonition, and it means infection immunity. It means you can have Babesia in a dog, which we see all the time, and that dog is absolutely healthy until there's some major trauma or stress, or there's another infection superimposed. We've seen Babesia cases referred to us here where the dog was absolutely healthy, went to the veterinarian and got a vaccine. When we give vaccines in veterinary medicine, many times there's five different antigens to five different genera of organisms in that vaccine. And what we're asking that dog's immune system that's in a state of premonition to do is, oh, by the way, here's five more bugs that are all slightly different, along with the one that you're carrying around in your blood for the last heaven only knows how long, and immune system deal with that. And probably in most instances, the immune system does deal with that. The dog doesn't get that sick. It remains infected with its Babesia. It mounts an appropriate immune response to the things we're vaccinating for. But I can guarantee you in some instances that isn't the case and the dog's platelet count plummets. It starts breaking down and killing all its erythrocytes and it's looking for a place to die by the time it gets here. I think you just define pretty much all chronic illness, right? And Dr. Rolls defines it as the pot boiling over theory, where you can only handle so much with your immune system before you become chronically ill. And that's what he def- that's what he refers to as chronic Lyme. We have Dr. Jill Carnahan, who defines it as the toxic bucket. And she defines it as, you know, it could be heavy metals, it could be mold illness, it could be all the toxins we breathe in and eating in our food, and then all the, the viruses and, ba- and bacteria we get from everyday life. I mean, toxoplasmosis is one that people can harbor their whole lives from raw meat, right? We know Epstein-Barr virus. We've talked about this a lot on this podcast. And I think that's a really good answer to the question, which gives me this follow-up question in regards to the term immunity where we left off before. When it comes to Lyme disease, most leading researchers and doctors believe once you have systemic Lyme, it's really hard to say it's fully eradicated from your body, that your immune system can become strong enough again and keep it at bay, but it's still there. But I kind of think you argued earlier that people can fully eradicate Bartonella, which seems different than the view towards Lyme disease. Did I I hear that correctly? Or am I mistaken with your views on, on Bartonella versus Lyme and being able to eradicate it and be truly immune versus just managing it and living a healthy life with the pathogen in your body for the rest of your life? So do you think most people who are infected by a tick with Borrelia burgdorferi develop symptoms? No, actually, I think most of them probably don't develop symptoms and their, and their immune system handles it and they go on with their with their lives. So I think we both think the same thing in regard to Borrelia burgdorferi and Bartonella. I think for the vast majority, it it is eliminated. Um, for some sm- much smaller percentage, fortunately, unfortunately, that, that's not the case. And the reasons for that, um, in many instances, you know, we don't have the sophistication in testing to actually understand why that occurs. In other instances, you know, you can come up with an example here, an example there. Um, the- well, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, Professor, but like Dr. McDonald did a study where somebody was on antibiotics for 10 years 
was chronic Lyme. And after passing, there was an autopsy done. And surprisingly, in the man's testicles, there was an overwhelming amount of spirochetes after 10 years of consistent antibiotic use. So I think you're right, there are outliers. But do you think that's because of the, you know, we'll use the terms acute and chronic. If somebody's healthy enough and they come into contact with Lyme or Bartonella, maybe they can eradicate it. But if they aren't able to, and that pot boils over, do you think that once it gets fully disseminated, then it remains and persists for the duration of their life? Or do you think that maybe that's a false view towards it? So when I give the very first lecture in infectious disease to the veterinary students, probably the second or third slide is a triangle. And I think in answering your question at the top of that triangle is genetics, okay? On the left side of that triangle is nutrition. On the right side of that triangle is toxicity. So, and in the middle is that balance that we're talking about between microbiome, pathobiome, the immune system, all the things that are going on in our body. And I'm not sure what you have for breakfast this morning or whether you got to eat lunch or what you'll have for dinner. I do know that when we finish, my wine consumption will resume rather rapidly. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, again, if you think about it, we are all different genetically, yep. right? We all have a different nutritional status, be it under nutrition, over nutrition, or gee, we're just right nutritionally. But then you've got mold, you've got plastics, you've got all these environmental toxins. And then we've got the microbiome that is probably altered by them, but not to the extent, again, I like my pathobiome because I have to practice medicine every day. And the idea that everything's screwed up, I can't deal with. So for me, if there's a finite number of organisms that are of diagnostic relevance and importance, and I can figure out who they are, and I can define them on a molecular basis by PCR and DNA sequencing, then at least I've got a chance of trying to reverse the disease in, in the patients that I'm dealing with. So the, I don't know if that answered your question, but what your question said to me was, this is a really complicated triangle. Yep. And one thing I, I can say, Matt, is if you look at our veterinary studies, and it's most of the veterinarians, by the time we tested them, have been to nine doctors. Okay. So they've been to rheumatologists, neurologists, internists. And the last one they end up with generally is a psychiatrist. And it's kind of the same situation with all the chronic illnesses. And we've got too much chronic illness in this country that we do not understand. Yes. And we need to do a better job in understanding the interactions of those three aspects of the triangle, the genetics, how it interplays with the nutrition and the toxicity. And most importantly, for some of us that believe all diseases are infectious, and I actually gave that lecture about 20 years ago, are all diseases infectious? And my labs work real hard to prove that infection is an important component of chronic illness. And Borrelia, Babesia, and Bartonella are important vector-borne organisms that can only exist in a vector or in a host. They cannot exist on this tabletop. So are you arguing, Professor, that all disease is infectious? That's what I'm hearing. You can't tease us like that and not tell us what your thoughts are. Well, that was the title of it. I did put, are all diseases infectious? 
Um, I don't believe getting hit by a car, it's an infectious disease, but I do believe that you could have toxoplasma or Bartonella in your blood and be a crazy cat lady and walk out in front of the car and get hit. Yep. And going back to schizophrenia, I think an important aspect for anyone to look in the literature and prove is there's a large number of epidemiological studies that have associated schizophrenia with toxoplasmosis. And if you ask me what I think, they were either one looking at the wrong organism, potentially epidemiologically, or two, we have to look at two organisms for which the cat's a reservoir, Toxoplasma gondii and Bartonella henselae. So, so Matt, I've, I've waited almost an hour and a half. Rich, I'm back. sorry. I, I have to apologize to Rich. <laughs> we, the, I, I'm, and look, you're, the conversation- How do you guys get along? <laughs> so, so I, I want to come back to this this um, this comment you made about the microbiome and the pathobiome, um, and um, you know we we've had we've had conversations as recently as a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Casey Kelly, for example. We just released her most recent podcast interview, um, where uh, you know I had, I had pointed out to Dr. Kelly that we're more non-us than we are us with our with our with our microbiome. And and she began to distinguish, not using your term of of, of pathobiome, but she she was trying to distinguish the microbes that are being spit into us with a tick bite from our from our our biome, um, and you know that that caused me to think back to a conversation we had with Dr. Bill Rawls, um, also a fellow North Carol Carolinian, Carolinian, uh, yeah, and um, and. His argument uh, to us was that all bugs are bad bugs, and um, and and he and he argued that um, that the reason our body ultimately breaks down after we die is because our immune system can't manage our microbiome anymore, and and what happens is our body's being broken down by all of those other bugs that are now eating uh, eating our body when we're um, you know when we die. So I'd like you to sort of like bring this together for us with your thoughts on this pathobiome versus microbiome. And are there really such things as good bugs or do we just have a, you know, a, a, a system that manages these bugs, all of them collectively. And as more and more of them come into our system, we, you know, we, we manage them or we don't manage them because they boil over. Um, or are there some bugs that are good bugs? They really are truly good bugs, even though they're non us. And these, we have these path, path you know, the, the pathobiome, which are the bad bugs, and 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 they're and they're bad by their nature. They don't become bad by virtue of us not having the ability to manage them. So, Rich, do you know how long bacteria have been on the planet Earth? Uh, I, longer than us, right? We 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 were we were we were born out of bacteria. So 3.5 billion years. I made one of my PhD students figure that out for me because I wasn't smart enough to do it. Um, and and I think, you know, we would be very ill-advised to think that all bacteria are bad. Um, you know, they do so many things that I I, I will accept Bill's philosophy that they manipulate us to a great extent um, and they try to coexist with us in most instances. 
And I also believe that there's some that have not on an evolutionary basis over that 3.5 billion years figured out how to play well in the sandbox. Um, we still seem to have that problem with humans sometimes. Um, so I, I, again, I keep going back. The pathobiome is not something that I created. And the first time I saw it was some of the European vector-borne in, uh, infectious uh, authors use the term. But for me as a clinician, it really resonates. You know, I, I mean, we, we know that if you sterilize the intestinal tract of a human, we probably wouldn't live very long, right? We know that if you alter the intestinal tract with antibiotics, you get an overgrowth of Clostridium difficile, and that's a really bad bacteria that ordinarily those other bacteria are keeping it from ever colonizing and being in our intestinal tract. So it, again, I think it's a matter of there's, you know, there's some bugs that are really stupid and haven't figured out how to even induce a persistent infection in a human. And I would use Rickettsia rickettsii and Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, as well as we understand from the research that's done, if you get Rocky Mountain spotted fever, there's only three outcomes. One, you get a very low dose from that tick and immunologically you handle that infection. You get a moderate to high dose from that tick and you get really sick and you go to your doctor. And if you're lucky, he gives you doxycycline and doesn't give you ampicillin and you recover or you die. And that all happens in about a two to three week period. But after that, um, experimentally, we have infected dogs or challenged dogs that had Rocky Mountain spotted fever at six months and three years and they didn't blink an eyeball. So they didn't get sick at all. And it's believed in humans, they can't do that same experiment that I did, but they don't believe that you can get Rickettsia rickettsii a second time. So there are some, you know, it, organisms that are highly pathogenic, like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, that is literally the, the tick-borne organism that kills the most people in the United States every year. And Yet it can persist in the tick because it's transovarially transmitted. Whereas a lot of the other vector-borne diseases, Borrelia, Babesia, Bartonella, um, you know, and others have figured out how to persist at least in an animal and sometimes in us. So I guess the question is, you know, I, I've, I've heard Tom Bilio, for example, argue that we are really just bacteria bags uh, and um, if that is uh, a, a, a way of describing who we are, how are we drawing that bright line between the microbiome and the pathobiome? And is it really just based on, you know, I'll, I'll come back to Dr. Rawls in his book, Unlocking Lyme. He had that virility scale where, um, where he was essentially arguing that, um, that, a, that a pathogen is less viral based on um, based on uh, the amount of contact humans have had with it during our evolution. And it's it has greater virility if we've had less contact with it. And, uh, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and, and he actually gave it some numbers. So is there is there some place on the virility scale where if it's above a certain level, it is it is part of our pathobiome. And if it's below a lower number, it's part of our microbiome. 
So you're talking about a virulence scale, correct, right? Correct, yeah. And how how pathogenic a organism is versus maybe if you're on the bottom of the scale, you're non-pathogenic. If you get to this line, you're pathogenic sometime. And if you get above that, almost invariably, you're going to induce disease in an animal or a human. Correct. I, I can buy that on an evolutionary scale. Absolutely. That there are some organisms that have so effectively co-evolved with us that they literally are helping us digest our food and do every other thing. Um, there's other organisms that, for the most part, like the staph on our skin, don't cause disease until something else alters our immune response, like immunosuppression, or we get a cut or something else where the bug gets a place to proliferate that's not typically prevented by intact skin. And then we've got the ones above the line that are the ones that often probably are animal reservoir organisms, in fact, are transmitted, in my opinion, that periodically make that jump out of the animal or out of the vet or via the vector into us. And we're just not as well adapted to handle them as, and, and again, from a veterinary perspective, dogs, if there's a, a Babesia in dogs is called Babesia gibsoni. And for, we know it's tick transmitted in other parts of the world, but Adam Birkenhauer, who's a faculty member here, did his PhD with me. And the pit bull terriers in North Carolina, the vast majority of them are infected with Babesia gibsoni, and they're transmitting it by fight, not by ticks. And if you look at those pit bull terriers, they look like rock hard wrestlers or boxers. They look absolutely healthy and they're in a state of premonition. But periodically, that same dog will do like we talked about. It'll get into a dog fight, it'll lose the fight, and then it'll develop immune mediated hemolytic anemia or immune mediated thrombocytopenia. I don't think we are as equipped to deal with Babesia microti as that pit bull is to deal with Babesia gibsoni, is kind of where I was going with that. So, you know, I think the, the, you know, as I've said to my colleagues at Duke, if, if you want to find vector transmitted infectious organisms, which we keep finding new ones all the time, look in animals and figure out. What, and if you want to understand their biological behavior, wait till they jump into one of your patients and do a rigorous study on that patient. And you'll figure out how that animal, that that organism actually behaves in regard to its pathogenicity and virulence. And I, and I, re I really love the argument you were making. We, we talk about herd immunity all the time. And, uh, and you're really defining the herd much more broadly than I've ever heard it, and, and I think more brilliantly, right? I mean, we generally just define the human population as, uh, as the herd, but your argument is no, it's not just the human population, it's also the animal population, it's the environment, and we really need to keep in mind that the herd is a much broader uh, spectrum, uh, and we need to be mindful of that so that we can remain healthy. Absolutely, and we all co-evolve together. You know, again, it's we we're not going to get into evolution, obviously, in in this discussion. But we all co-evolve together, and that's why when we put together this kind of timeline, you know, bacteria were here billions of years before you know fish started crawling out of the ocean or whatever, you know, and mammals started to develop. So 
these interactions between the viruses, which predated the bacteria, and the bacteria, and the protozoa, and the vectors, and then, you know, we just came along. And when we came along, we had to figure out a way to survive, which our immune systems, every time it would see a different one. And some of them finally figured out we could all be friendly and play well in the sandbox together. And some figured out that haven't figured that out yet and may never figure it out. But, but you know, I, I guess I've said it too many times. I, I'm a clinician and I still see patients on the veterinary side. And I have to believe that there are a finite number of infectious agents that can turn that state of premonition or that state of health that we have into disease or alter, turn, you know, be a actual pathobiome. Right. And, and it does beg the question that, you know, and I think you're getting to it, you know, really, really brilliantly is, is this whole seed and soil issue, right? Uh, because you, you have, you have these dogs, um, you know, that are, that are healthy until they're not healthy, right? And they've been managing microbes until they couldn't manage microbes. And that's largely because something has changed in the soil. And now the seed is no longer um, manageable by the dog. The pot is boiling over. And one of our experiences, predominantly with the veterinary studies that we've done, but clearly with Bartonella and other people that we've tested through my IRB approved research studies here, it absolutely amazes me that these will be, let's say, 30 to 40-year-old, healthy, vibrant, intelligent individuals that, you know, are unfortunately overachievers and try to push themselves too much. But they've been fine with that until they got divorced. They were fine with that until their mother died. They were fine with that until they lost their job or got hit by a car. And that you, you can actually pick that point in time or they can pick that point in time when they went from being in a state of health or premonition, perhaps if they already had Bartonella or Babesia or Borrelia, to a state of very progressive disease. And, you know, I actually forced my residents to go to the whiteboard after we get a medical history and prove to me when the disease started because they want to talk about what that owner just told them happened in the last 24 to 48 hours. And I want them to go back when they got that puppy a year ago as a rescue and convince me that all those little things that went wrong with that puppy in that one year period weren't related to an organism that it's had for that year period of time. So back to that, I, I don't believe all diseases are infectious, but I do believe the interaction of those infectious agents with the other aspects of our genetics and our nutrition and our exposure to toxins are a big factor in chronic disease expression. But you said earlier that you believe there's a finite amount of pathogens that can make us sick and take us out of premonition, which is that balancing act of our immune system and pathogens, right? But I wonder if I mean, and this is, of course, just thinking outside the box and, and really geeking out. Can there be a large quantity of small things that almost never infect people to make them symptomatic, but collectively they result in us losing premonition because we have so many different things going on that traditionally you wouldn't see break that threshold, right? So that finite number may not be so finite if, if we have so much in our toxic bucket and it's a whole bunch of little things instead of uh, many less larger things, right? 
that that's fair. If you alter any one of those three corners of my triangle that I use, um, or you alter two of them moderately, so let's say we alter one, you know, I, I mean, I agree with Bill when when people die of starvation in Africa, they don't die of starvation, they die of an infection. That's what usually will take them out of the world. And, you know, if you study those people, you can find one more or multiple infectious agents that are involved with them, you know, dying. We see that in veterinary medicine all the time with malnutrition um, or extreme toxicities. You know, birds that die in Florida of toxicities, they don't always die because that toxicity is knocked out their liver, knocked out their kidney. It suppressed their immune system to the extent that they got an infection and the infection killed them. And, and again, that goes back to what you guys said about veterinary medicine is one, because we look at a lot of different species. Two, we are responsible for all the species on the planet, except for one of which we have some impact with. Um, you know, we have to look across how these diseases and how these infections behave across many, many different animal species. And the, the, you know, again, you can have vitamin E deficiency in cattle be out west because of what they're eating in the grass, and they'll die of infections. I think that's a perfect way for us to end. We did promise you that we would return you to um, <laughs> your social responsibilities, uh, which will include um, uh, returning to uh, ingesting some wine. So uh, he said a lot of wine, wine Rich, not some. So, <laughs> I, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing, um, you know, a couple of hours with our, our community. This was absolutely brilliant. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm sad that we have to say goodbye, but we're, but I'm hoping you'll agree to come back and, and, uh, and maybe, maybe have an, uh, a round two of this conversation uh, because this is, you know, you, you, you introduce us despite uh, having over 350 episodes in the can, uh, you introduced us to many, many topics that uh, no one has introduced us to yet. And we'd really love to revisit some of these things in some more detail when Matt and I have some time to process uh, so much of the brilliant information you shared with us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And honestly, I think it's great what you're doing to try to educate the public and try to go from the science to the patients and the doctors in between. Um, honestly, we're all in this together and nobody has all the answers, um, no matter what podcast we get to listen to. So I think the good news is we're getting smarter. Uh, the good news is um, certainly in the context of Lyme disease and vector-borne diseases that we now have national attention um, on those diseases. And I think, you know, as many people have said, long COVID is teaching us that people with fibromyalgia and people who say they had Lyme disease and are now chronically ill, those people do not need a psychiatrist. They need us to better understand the pathogenesis of their disease and have better diagnostics and better therapeutics to address their illness.